From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and go and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. In an instant, how life can be turned upside down. One moment you're excited about being pregnant with twins and the next you're paralysed with fear as your son is airlifted to Brisbane for emergency care after a freak accident. Felicity Burton is a wife, a mother, admired horsewoman and a co-founder of Common Ground Foundation. In 2018, life threw a curveball at Felicity and Carl that no parent dares to dream of. Felicity shares her story on horses, motherhood, and tackling the challenges life throws at you. From the saddle. From the saddle. Hi, Felicity. Thank you so much for joining us today. People who know you know you as a wife, mother, and an admired horsewoman. You have a husband and three kids, yeah? That's right. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. That's all right. So, Felicity, horses, have you always been around them? Oh, Caitlin, since the age of about, oh my gosh, maybe two or three, I'd been, you know, bugging my parents to let me go and learn to ride a horse. Mum and dad didn't have horses um, right from the beginning. They they used to ride horses as a kid, but um, where I grew up, we didn't have them initially and, and eventually they, they gave in to letting me go and learn to ride a horse at a local riding school. My sister was huge on dancing and my mother, when she had horses, uh, she can remember her father saying to her, oh God, never let your kids have horses because you'll never have any money. You know? <laughs> so I think that resonated in her ears when, um, you know, she had children and I started saying to her, I'd really love to ride. And she was, nope, you can go and learn to dance with your sister. And off I went to dancing lessons. And I think that mightn't have even lasted a term and many episodes of me trying to burn my tutu on the fire and (laughs) and throw my ballet shoes out the window. And she quickly discovered I had two left feet. So she felt sorry for me and let me go and learn to ride. And I think it started off with a, you know, half hour riding lesson. And then it very, quickly the next week went to an hour and then half a day and a day and the rest is history really yeah I think once once it's in your blood it's something that you just stuck with well I guess you didn't grow up around them as such kids on the land they see horses mum rides horses dad rides horses but not in your case it was a genuine interest yeah, yeah, that's right. I think um, where we moved to when I was three, it was, so I'm from Kingaroy and mum and dad bought a little acreage on the outskirts of Kingaroy and there was a Shetland pony there and I can remember just being so keen to, you know, go and brush the pony and do something, you know, with it and I, I don't even know why it was there, whether it was people that owned the place before us or adjusting it or something, but yeah, it just, I don't know, ignited something in me that I, you know, I loved it and, and the, even the smell of a horse you know it's just something that once you get that in your veins I think that you just can't stop thinking about it and they're so rewarding to be around you know and I think there's something that you can constantly learn from forever Um, I'm still learning you know every time I do something with a horse I learn something more so they're certainly very rewarding. So riding lessons progressed into what? So that riding school had like it was quite amazing and very unique 
it was run by one lady. She'd had, you know, 20 horses that she'd saddle up every Sunday morning and tie them all together and lead them up the road to where she had her riding school. And I think she identified that I was really keen. So she had a couple of ponies that were more like show ponies and she'd let kids like myself that were, you know, keen to kind of progress and learn actually have that pony as their pony for the time they were there. So I started out doing a bit of, you know, ag showing and hacking and whatnot and I was given the opportunity to actually ride a Western Pleasure horse and, you know, I I leased a couple of horses and then went on to break in and train a few of my own and that actually took me over to America three times before I was 18. So I was on Australian youth teams and was able to ride at the World Show and it was pretty amazing and a wonderful experience and I think it's really set me up for for what I'm doing now and, you know, those things that you learn, show riding, have really given me the ring craft to be able to go and show now in a, you know, Stockman's Challenge or even at a camp draft, you know, being able to manage my nerves and stuff. So it certainly had its place and I'll be forever grateful that I was given the opportunities to do that. So let's go back. You said that you broke your own horses and trained your own horses. Where were you exposed to that? At what point did you feel like you could do that? Oh, it. so I guess it's a case of having to. So mum and dad were, you know, blue collar workers and with the idea of, you know, one daughter in dancing and the other one with a horse and my brother, he was mad keen on motorbikes and ski boats and stuff. So we all chose the expensive hobbies. And mm. and um, I remember the first time, you know, I asked if I could have a horse of my own and I was about maybe seven or eight and mum and dad ended up buying a horse for me. It cost $1,000 and it was a part Arab Appaloosa something bits of whatever chestnut mare <laughs> that had been broken in for six weeks. And they bought her because she seemed quiet and whatever. So she was, you know, she had had the right thing done by her and she was relatively quiet. But, oh, God, the Arab had come out in her every now and then. The tail would curl over her back and, you know, you'd have to deal with with what was under you. So, you know, at the time you you think, oh, God, I wish I had that horse over there that's the $20,000 something that's, you know, that's beating me every weekend. But actually that was the um, silver lining in it all being put on something that maybe wasn't so capable and definitely not so trained, I had to figure out how to do it myself. So mum and dad were great. They, you know, gave me that opportunity to have a horse and I made it into whatever I could. I won my first buckle on that little mare when I was about 12, I think. And then we sold her because I wanted to, she wasn't able to be registered. You know, the Western Horseman and um, Horseman's Trading Post, we used to get those magazines and Australian Horseman and you'd see um, the articles on, you know, kids going over to America and it was like, wow, you know, imagine being able to do that. And I did like, you think of my situation and think, well, that's, you wouldn't think that it would be possible that I could ever do that. But my um, mum is incredible in the fact that she, you know, was big on manifesting things. And she would say to me, well, you know, I don't know how it'll happen, love, but of course it will if you're passionate about it. So I'd go to sleep dreaming about it and think about what it would feel like to ride these horses over in America. And because obviously you don't take horses over there, you go and get given a show horse to ride and the world's your oyster and you can do whatever you set your mind to. And um, so that kind of ignited something in me, I guess, to to try and make it happen. So we did sell that first little horse and we bought a, they bought a 
yearling quarter horse filly and I think she wasn't much more than a thousand bucks either and they realized that I was capable or, or had a bit of a talent and knew that you know in that time that was when Ian Francis was doing a lot of schools and Warren Backhouse I you know did go to quite a few of their schools and and was sort of taken under their wing a little bit in you know they could kind of see that I was passionate and they'd give me that extra five or ten minutes you know when you're you're there at the school and because I'm this young kid, you know, really wanting to learn and hanging off every word they said. So I really don't know what made me think that I could actually go and break a horse. <laughs> but I suppose if you think you can get it quiet enough that you could get on it, well, you know, you just go from there and see what happens. And she was quiet. So I did break her in. But unfortunately, after, I don't know, maybe a month of riding her, she cut her back leg really badly, like that she wasn't even sound for another 18 months. So in the meantime, I was horseless. And um, things happen for a reason, obviously, because that, again, not having the money to go and buy a show horse for me. Um, Mum and dad wanted to make my dreams come true and help me, but, you know, didn't sort of, there wasn't a path, an easy path forward. But um, out of that came leasing horses. So I didn't go and lease the best show horse in Australia by any means. I actually leased another little mare that I had to break in and get her going. And she ended up winning High Point Junior Horse of Australia and I won High Point Youth of Australia on her. And um, she was the first thing that um, got me overseas. And then yeah, I broke in another one that I leased off this same lady. And in my final year, youth year, so I was 18, I leased a horse that had actually won the two-year-old Western Pleasure Futurity the year before or he was a very nice horse and um, that was a nice way to finish my youth career, I suppose. But it's it's funny how things do a full circle and I think no matter, you know, if you're so keen on doing something that you'll find a way to make it happen if you believe that it will. Felicity, for anyone that doesn't understand, how does leasing a horse or back then work? Oh, well, that's right. Back then, we had a personal relationship with the lady that I leased the horses off. It was Kathy Marsh. She lives at um, Gympie. And she could see that, oh, I think she might have even seen me show horses, you know, leading up to this problem that I had with my new horse um, hurting itself, my new registered quarter horse hurting itself. And um, she said, well, I don't have anything that I could um, help you out with as far as a show horse, but I have horses here. She was a breeder. So, you know, I have horses here that, um, you could lease off me. And I think it came down to just insuring them for the value that she said that they were worth at the time. Mm -hmm. And she could see that we were a good family and going to look after them. So it was kind of a handshake thing that, yeah, we kind of just, just rolled with it. But I think that that sort of situation looks different in any yeah, yes. with different people and, yeah. you know, different situations. But, yeah, that's how it worked for us. So it was, you know, it didn't cost us any money as uh, as far as, you know, having to pay for a lease, but we just had it insured. Yeah, okay. So tell me, how did you go to America? How did that happen? Oh, a lot of bloody fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> Car washes or what? Bake sales? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Pony rides, yeah. Um, hot dogs, you know, like, I mean, raffle tickets. There was a lot of blood, sweat and tears going to that. <laughs> but the first time was actually um, as a representative to go to a leadership conference. So that wasn't riding horses. The APHA had put it on and um, combined with the AQHA, I think, and... 
I went over there and just was there for, I think it was a week, seven days. My trip might have been 10 days all up, but it was seven days that we were in um, this conference for. And it was incredible. Like, I mean, you know, public speaking in Australia is nothing to what the kids over there are groomed for and how they're taught to public speak and expected to be able to do it. Mm. You know, we and did um, youth judging. So, We'd go and watch a class of horses and then judge them like a lead class, say a showmanship, horsemanship and a Western Pleasure or a trail or a reigning event and have to judge it and then and have judge, say, four horses in each event and then have to give our reasons, stand up in front of a panel of judges and give our reasons of how we place the horses and then why we put them in those placings. So that was so intimidating for me. Like I was the most shy, quiet child, like, God, we'd stop at the corner shop and my mum would give us $2 to jump out and grab the milk at the corner store and I just would bark and my sister, my younger sister, would grab the money off me and go, oh, God, Felicity, you just take <laughs> off and grab it because it was just not in my comfort zone. So that was a huge thing for me to be able to do it. And I look, I'm not going to lie, I did take my notes in there and I remember walking into the room and they one judge said, okay, well, you can put your notes down now and give us your reasons. And I looked at her and I said, look, I'm from Australia and um, public speaking is is not so big over there and I'm finding this really difficult and intimidating. So if it's okay, could I please have my notes? And she's put her pen down and she's like, okay, then off you go. So needless to say, I didn't, um, I didn't do very well in the judging because they, um, you know, that was one of the stipulations you went to have any notes, but I got through it and it was a really big personal growth thing for me. It was amazing. I, was, I think I was 14 or 15. Goodness. And was selected, yeah, was selected on, you had to write an email and a letter about why you should be selected and, uh, you know, did you fit all these different criteria and, and it was more just an emotional letter on, you know, how would you represent your country and all this sort of stuff. And I remember typing it up one afternoon and it was a Sunday afternoon. Mum and Dad were both out in the yard gardening or whatever and, I came inside and I showed them this letter and they looked at each other and went, oh, God, that's really good. If she gets this, how are we going to stop her from going? Anyway, so that, yeah, then they rang a week later and said, wow, um, this is amazing. This is hands down. You know, if if you are happy to go, we've selected you to go. So tell me, can you remember your why? Well, reading those stories in the Horseman's Trading Post, the Australian Horseman, it was just I wanted to I wanted to go to America and I thought that might open a door as to, you know, being able to go again or I don't know. It was just seemed to be the place that, you know, you go and learn stuff and you you grow and meet the right people in your industry. Again, I was just so passionate about horses. Then down the track I managed to qualify twice on the youth team and, and go and actually ride. So when you first went over at 14 or 15, whatever it was, did you go alone? A shy little introverted person. Well, you say yeah. you're introverted, but I don't know. You you know, you know, threw your hand up as a three-year-old and said, I want to ride mm. a horse. And you put yourself out there and you actually did it off your own back in terms of it was your will. It wasn't your mum driving you to ride a horse or anything like It was you God saying, no. yeah. yeah. So in a way... You're almost like an extroverted introvert because you threw yourself into the deep end. So like going the very first time, mum came with me and I had a chaperone. So it was two adults with me and just myself. And I remember a couple of nights before we went and stayed in Brisbane. My auntie lives there and we stayed with her before we flew out. And 
I remember saying to mum, oh, I think I've got a tummy bug. I'm just so sick. Like my stomach won't stop turning. I can't eat anything. <laughs> I'm running to the bathroom. And she's, I remember her saying, oh, to, I remember listening to her speak to my auntie saying, oh, God, you know, she's come down with something. She's sick. And um, then the night before she said, do you think it could be nerves? And I said, oh, oh, when you say that, I hadn't thought about it, but Maybe. Anyway, the moment we got on the plane and I sat in the seat and clipped myself in, I looked at mum and I said to her, God, I'm hungry. Like I just, it was the whole anxiety of the lead up of the, you know, because it was just such an unknown thing. We go, you know, didn't know what it was going to be like, who was going to be there, but probably having mum and dad saying to me always that, you know, the world's your oyster, of course Mm. you can do it. There was never any doubt that you couldn't do things like that. And reading that and going, well, although I tick all those boxes when I was reading the criteria and, well, maybe I could. And it's just that glimmer of, well, why couldn't you? Yeah. You know, I suppose backed myself enough to do it. That's unreal. So over there and you're in a totally different world because Mm -hmm. it just is. Do you remember like a defining moment? Um, On that trip, probably not. The defining moment for me was getting through it (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, surviving and it was, and living to tell the tale. The big thing that I remember about that was the youth judging and the public speaking side of it. And I mean, not just like 10 or 12 kids, like there was hundreds of kids in a room. Like, yeah, that was a pretty big thing for me and a real eye opener. And visiting, you know, the the different places, the studs and and show farms and just seeing the opportunity that there was and coming home with these few tools in my tool belt or understanding a lot more about judging side of things and, you know, how to be a role model within your breed society or, you know, in your community. Probably looking back on it, it might have been a bit of a turning point to give me the confidence to then, you know, put myself out there a little bit more and and make things happen. And then, yeah, going on to being able to do that a couple of times, riding was, um, that was huge for me and it was just a real bucket list item being ticked, yeah. So three trips to America? Yeah, there was three trips. On the last trip, myself and one of the other girls were offered a job to stay there for an all-around trainer. And so he had everything from, you know, Hunt's seat horses to Western Pleasure to reining to cutters to cow horse and he said I need a show rider and I want it to be you and oh man you know that was like wow I remember Christy and I even saying Christy Trigg was the other girl she you know we, we shared a room together and she said oh maybe we could just maybe we could say yes and we just won't go home and <laughs> I was like I don't think I'd I just couldn't do that to my mum, you know, just staying over there and leaving and, God, mum, I don't know when I'm coming back. You know, my mum's my best friend. I'll openly say that now and she has been for forever. Um, so How I old were you? do that to my family. Well, I would have been 17, I reckon. It was my last year of high school and I was a bit of an overachiever, so it was a busy year um, <laughs> and then throwing in, you know, going to America for like three weeks or whatever it was, was a pretty big thing too. So did you stay? Um, but and needless to say, I, I came home. No, <laughs> needless to say, I came home. And I think the idea of being that far away, family is, was so important to me then and still is now. And being that far away and being so young and um, definitely not worldly was enough to, you know, for me to say to myself, well, maybe I'll, I'll ring him in 
a year or in a couple of years or, you know, do something like that. And I never did, but I still don't regret my decision to stay to stay home. I went on to do a lot of contracting and um, breaking in young horses for an old bloke that's local to Cumbia. So he managed a place at the Bunya Mountains. There's 10,000 acres and um, for another lady in town. So that was great. That was a couple of years and Riding those young horses with Frank's experience and his knowledge was incredible and I still to this day use things that he showed me or and I won't say told me to do because he was a man of very little words. You had to learn by watching him and mm. and making your own mistakes. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, those couple of years were incredible and um, really set me up to learn just even how to muster a paddock and working cattle and really gave me a passion to start camp drafting. There's a lot of power in that though, like not being told what to do specifically and learning from watching because it's almost like when you're given a set of instructions, you follow those instructions, your brain sort of doesn't think outside of those instructions. It almost teaches you to Mm. navigate the situation yourself in your own way. That's right. You've got to interpret what's happening in front of you and why. Yeah. So, you know, we'd have, I don't know, anywhere between 12 and 15 horses tied up, all like yearlings that we'd handled and now breakers. And Frank was very methodical. And so you could pick that up pretty quickly, you know, just even how he caught a horse and how, you know, then how, because we pony them off another lead horse with a slick fork and use a flag and bag them down. And um, I would be the crash test dummy that'd get on them the first time. (laughs) And he'd have me dallied up to his saddle and to his lead horse and, whatever, but learning all of those things from watching him do it, like you say, probably made me interpret it my way. And then you're understanding then when you see him do something slightly different that, you know, to the naked eye, to the person that just rocked up that day would not have seen the change or mm. seen the, seen the, the um, adjustment for that different horse. Yeah. But um, those little tiny things uh, has made me very critical on, on, on my own riding and then has given me a tool to now be able to go and teach other people from picking up on those tiny little pinpoints that I can see it straight away. I don't know if that's just sort of how I am and have been as a rider, I guess, from a young age, having to learn a lot off my own back and from watching a lot of people. Like, look, I never had a private coach myself. Look, mum and dad did send me to a number of clinics and schools, but I can't say that I had a private coach singularly that, you know, I I'd had a mentor that I just listened and learnt off them all the time. And I don't think I've once had a riding lesson, <laughs> you know, a one-on-one yeah. riding lesson. And not to say that I still wouldn't be open to that now, but so that's that's so given me, I think, you know, there's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? So a yeah, flip side to that is I've had to learn a lot by watching and listening and interpreting. So Felicity, when you are teaching or instructing, mm-hmm. How do you find you do that after you've learned through watching? Oh, look, I can see things so quickly and I don't know if it's a natural thing or just something that comes easily to me to explain it, maybe because I've gone over it a thousand times in my mind a different way, trying to figure it out myself. Yeah. So when a situation is unraveling in front of me and it could just be, you know, I don't know, teaching someone basic collection or steering or direction or cutting out or chasing a cow, I can quickly see what I think is the issue or how they could change it 
I've been told that my teaching is very clear and basic and concise. So I think, you know, I try not to overcomplicate things because it doesn't certainly doesn't help. You know, as a recipient of it, it's much easier to learn when you're told something very clearly and direct and and then go and apply it and look if it doesn't work what I'm telling them to do, I they can go away and they don't have to use it. But um certainly try it and nine times out of ten it works. Did you do a stint as contracting? How long was that for? When I was with Frank, he never paid me for work for him. I was working. He always used to say, you don't work for me, you work with me because I can't pay you. And I said, I know that. So I was I was working with him for, it was two years with the horses. Um, but, and this is, look, I was still living at home. I was 18 and 19, I think. And the way I did get paid was when we did a bit of work, like mustering with the cattle where he was, he was um, on the place that he was looking after. And then he went and had a bit of other contracting stuff. So I would go with him. So when he went to a job, you know, I got I got the job as well. And then um, I actually met Carl and, gosh, the rest is history there, but that's a story in itself. But um, that's really like, so Carl, you know, he's, he was a horse trainer when I met him and um, did a little bit of contracting on the side, but our contracting business just really grew and we were able to put the, um, you know, train horses while we were contracting. So that worked. It was sort of a hand-in-hand thing that worked really well together. So, yeah, from, you know, the age of 18, I've been doing a lot of that paddock sort of work and and learning a lot as I go. So you've met Carl. at Like what age were you about now? I would have been 20. It's a funny story. We own a property at Karangan, a place called Karangan North, which is um, just north of Bell in southeast Queensland. And the the place where I first met Carl was Karangan North Camp Draft, which was actually my first camp draft that I was competing in. (laughs) So that was pretty random. And um, I was just literally introduced to him by a friend, um, Tash Templeton, John Templeton's wife. Yeah. Um, So I grew up just up the road from Butsy. And Tash and Butsy lived next door to each other. So they're brother and sister. Um, So Tash I knew quite well and she was riding around and John Templeton was there riding and competing and Tash just, you know, were chatting and she said, oh, Flip, have you met Carl? I think she might have said, have you met John? And I knew John. I said, yeah, I know John. And she said, oh, have you met Carl? And I said, oh, no, hi, Carl, you know, and that was kind of it. So, you know, he went his way, I went mine, went home. And then I think the next time I saw him was at, the cutting futurity in Toowoomba later that year and the same crowd, you know, Tash, John and Tash were there with some other friends and Carl was there again and we caught up and I hung out at the bar a little bit longer, you know, a bit later, stayed back and <laughs> I was still very shy um, and so was he. He's he's quite, he's very quiet until you get to know him or he, or he gets um, a few beers under his belt and then he's quite the opposite but, um, yeah, at that age we were both quite shy and I think from there then Tash, yeah, so she's been quite um, uh, pivotal in our yeah. relationship, I suppose. Then she said to me when we were at Toowoomba, she's like, oh, you know, I quite often I'll have a roast on and John and I can't eat it all. So, you know what, you should come over for dinner. Oh, she and of course stitched was you there up. When she invited me over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the rest is really history. Yeah, that would have been 2006 or seven. And then in two thousand and by two thousand and eight, I was over here living, living. I moved over here. Yeah, so it would have been about twelve months later. So, how long before you got married? 
Uh, yeah, long enough. So we got married in 2014. Oh, so goodness. So he's not a, not a quick mover, that's for sure. <laughs> we didn't get engaged until 2012. Yeah, so four or five years after we actually got together. And, well, yeah, so I would have been 25 and got married at 27, something yeah. like that. So, Felicity, you do have three kids. What age were you when you had your first? So I turned 30 about 10 or 12 days after I had Corey. Yeah, Corey was born in January and I remember we had Corey and Carl was obviously here when I had him and then he had a job lined up. We were, so we were doing a lot of contracting and, you know, trying to make ends meet and yeah. save money and mm-hmm. build build um, an enterprise, you know, entity with cattle and um, he had a job lined up to go and do some branding. So then he was away for a fortnight <laughs> and not oh, long wow. after I had Corey. And, yeah, I well, I didn't realise at the time but I had help syndrome which is um it's like a liver trauma and I developed that during the birth of having him so my doctor she kind of didn't want to tell me after I had him because she said you don't want to go googling what that is because you'll be really um traumatized at what that is so I just want you to get better and I was like oh she said you've just got you know your blood's not quite right but your body actually stops making I think it's white blood cells um, and, shut, you know, your liver shuts down. And so it's like a 25% mortality rate of mother and child I've since found out and that's oh, clearly wow. why she wanted me, me to go Googling that stuff. But, um, yeah, so I was really crook and uh, that was pretty, you know, pretty rough um, introduction to motherhood and, you know, had a baby with reflux and all that fun stuff. So when you say you were sick, like what – you know, a new mum is a hard gig as it is, but then with mm, this mm. on top, what, yeah, what was so, it? Yeah, uh, so your body stops making well, one of the blood cells, red or white, I've, you know, I try, mm. I've chosen to yes. have forgotten about yeah. it. Um, yeah, your liver shuts down. You're, um, yeah, you, you are very likely to hemorrhage like during birth. Mm. And I did have a lot of blood loss, but I didn't, there was no hemorrhaging, just some, you know, massive clots and... I was like very yellow. Yeah, I think she kept me in hospital for five or six days. I had a natural delivery. Yeah, and it's sort of, I guess at the time, you just don't realise what's going on because it's your first child. You're trying to learn to breastfeed and all that fun stuff. And so you just go, oh, she wants to keep me here another day. Well, at least someone's cooking for me. Like, it's (laughs) fine. I'll stay in hospital for another day. Yeah, and then when I got home, it was just, I was deathly tired and recovering from that, I guess. And um, then Carl was away and and my mum was beautiful and she came over and stayed for a week at a time and Carl's mum just lives up the road. So she was fantastic, you know, coming and checking in on me. But I was very pig-headed and wanting Mm. to, you know, no, I'm fine. I can do this myself. And yeah, I just think, look back now and think, oh God, you know, you're crazy. But I, I remember mum, when she stayed over, she said to me, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just get up in the middle of the night and I can, you know, I can settle in because he had reflux. So he was waking a lot and um, she like raked just screaming, you know, and you couldn't console him. But we didn't realise that again at the time. Mm. Just thought I had a screaming baby. <laughs> so then you try and feed him. And I think I ended up with mastitis and in hospital with that. And mm. Yeah, that was a rough trot, but you know, we all have our own stories I guess in that in that regard and and it's quite minuscule to what some people go through and it was just a bit of a crazy introduction to to motherhood and um yeah, Carl working away a lot was 
were just added into the mix that, you know, you had to try and make it work and whatever. But, you know, I would take Corey a lot with me as a tiny little fella, you know, on the bike, in the car, I'd have him strapped to me, you know, in one of those carriers and we'd, I'd put around and check cows and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, Because yeah, it that had was, to um, be done, didn't it? A big it? part of our life. Uh, right from well our kids lives right from day dot you know they've always been out and about doing things and over in the yards and in the pram beside the crush and you know things like that weighing steers and like all rural kids are yeah well I think as hard as it is sometimes raising kids in the bush I don't think I would change it to go and you know swap out and, and bring my kids up in in town and I know some people don't have the choice, but we're blessed that we we do we have made that choice, and it's definitely not an easy choice. But at least our kids get to wake up every day and run around and go and play in the mud, and you know make choices and decisions that they learn from. You know whether it be just how high they should climb in that tree, or whether they you know are confident enough to chase some steers up the race for us, and you mm-hmm. know to not get too close and not get kicked. And, you know, they learn about all these dangers. They learn about their surroundings very quickly and very young. I think it's um, a great way to bring kids up, for sure. From the saddle. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today. www.hewittconsultingco.com.au Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. In 2018, Corey was 20 months old and you just found out you were pregnant with twins. Yeah, so we were trying for our second child and we were never sure whether we were, you know, Carl's one of two and mm-hmm. I'm one of three children. And, um, you know, Carl was saying, no, you know, Corey just needs a, a brother or a sister and that's, he'll be right, you know, that's all, two's good, two's easy, one each, you know, one for him and one for I. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm one of three and that seemed to work all right too. So we were always undecided and we were trying for our second child. We we fell and I knew straight away that I was pregnant. I just didn't feel, you know, I felt, I just knew I was pregnant. So I tested and I was on, you know, what would have been five weeks. And I actually said to Carl, look, you know, because we, you know, when you have your first child, you're so excited and yeah. excited to see the little, you know, baby on the screen when you go scans and stuff and I said to him because he was you know we were always just so busy and I said to him um he, we were contracting at Ackland at the time and I said look I'm gonna I've got my scan booked for Friday do you want to come or you know he's like oh well we were going to be doing this but I will come if you want me and I said look I'm fine I'm fine you don't need to come it's just that little flickering dot on the screen, remember? Like it's not like you see a baby. Like it's only five, you know, four or five weeks, like five or six weeks. And he's like, yeah, true. He said, do you mind? I said, no, that's fine. I'll go in on my own. So I went into the thing getting my scan and I'm at, you know, the sonographer's got the thing on my tummy and, well, you know, the plot sort of thickens. My um, sister has twins and she was pregnant with twins at the time and she was very at ease with the idea that she was pregnant with twins and I said to her, um, you're crazy, how are you not full of anxiety? Like what's, you know, how are you dealing with that? And she's like, because she also had a child the same age as Corey. So 
we were both pregnant at the same time with both lots mm. of children. And um, so she's got a, you know, uh, she'd have a two-year-old and, you know, two six-month-olds or whatever. And I said, how are you going to be dealing with that grocery shopping? And, you know, and she said, oh, you hold back. I said to her, your whole back seat in the car is going to be full of babies. Like, you know, and she said, oh, it's fine. You know, I'll get some help or whatever. And I was like, well, you know, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you're dealing with it because I'm full of anxiety for you. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night thinking this, you know. Um, anyway, so when I told her I was pregnant, she said, wouldn't it be funny if you were having twins? And I'm like, yeah, but it's not in our family. It's, you know, and she said, no, that's true. But she said, wouldn't it be cool? And I, yes, look, Mia, it's fine. One, one for me is enough. Just at the moment, you know, I'm, my thinking of my um, first pregnancy and how, sort of the tra- traumatic entry to um, to motherhood, um, I think one more child would be enough just at the moment. Anyway, I w- at the sonographer and I told the sonographer about this story my sister said to me about having twins and wouldn't it be funny. And she was kind of quiet. She didn't, at this point, the picture came up on the screen and I said to I said to her thinking I'm the expert, you know, oh, there's the little flickering dot that, you know, we, I was talking about. And then I looked over to the left and I said, what's that little dot on that side? <laughs> she said to me, oh, you're not going to believe this. She said, there's two in there. And I just looked at her and I couldn't stop laughing because I said, oh, no, you know, you're joking. And I think that's the way I covered up the whole like holy shit moment. And um, I, she so. And she's like, oh, this is the sick, and this is, so this is 20, yeah, 2018. Yeah. And it was very dry. So 2018 leading into 2019, you know, a horrible drought. And she said to her, this is the sixth set of twins I've scanned in the last two weeks. Wow. And I said, oh, it must be, must be the lack of rain or something. Hey? And she's like, I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's crazy. And I kept it together for me to pay for my appointment and then walked out the door and and dropped my phone and smashed it and oh, I didn't mean to. No. I, yeah, it just fell out of my hand and I was crying the whole way to the car. <laughs> just thinking, how am I going to do with this? You know, is this happening to me? Anyway, I um, yeah, I rang Carl straight away and I said to him, uh, he's like, yeah, I was crying and he said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, how do you feel about being the father of three? And he goes, what? And I said, oh, no, like there's only two in there. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> He, did, he thought I had, there was three in there. Yeah, you gave like, him, no, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, geez. So anyway, um, yeah, that was, that was a pretty, that was pretty dramatic. And, you know, I rang my sister and she couldn't stop laughing. She thought it was hilarious. And <laughs> my mum was very concerned. She said, why are you crying? And I said, mum, I'm having twins. And she said, oh, Felicity, you don't joke about things like that. And I said, do I sound like I'm joking? You know, with a few proverbials <laughs> thrown in there. And, um. Uh, she she just said, "Oh, love, you know, it'll be all right. Like it's just it's meant to be. It's you're too special to not have two. So we were blessed with um yeah two beautiful boys. So um I found that out on the Friday, and so that was a big life changing moment for us. The idea that we were going to be parents of three and parents of multiples, and you know how are we going to do it all and We'd actually, we'd bought our first property and we were trying to buy, well, we had just signed the contract on next door. So, yeah, we hadn't paid our first payment, at, you know, payments are quarterly. So we hadn't yet paid for our first payment on this second property. I had the scan on the Friday, pregnant with twins, and then I had an accident with Corey on the following Tuesday that really changed our lives. Um, yeah, it was very surreal. 
what happened to us. So tell us what happened. So we had just a few like free range sheep at the time. We're certainly definitely not sheep farmers, just for a bit of land for ourselves and that's our lambs. And um, yeah, they just we have crop here and they would just really live around the house. You know, they're sort of thing, they're like homing pigeons. They just don't leave. So um, they were hanging around and we had, it was in the drought, so there wasn't a lot of crop around and a lot for them to eat. And we actually had dogs, believe it or not. Like you wouldn't think there'd be wild dogs around here, but um, dogs were giving them a touch-up in a pretty bad way. Like I'd find a dead lamb, you know, in the waterway. One, you know, for the last, I had found a dead lamb in the waterway for the last few mornings leading up to this event and I'd, so we were locking them up at night time and, you know, the sheep sheep are silly things and they, you know, what they would do first is they'd run around and then you, you just kind of keep hazing them around and they'd just then file into their pen like they knew exactly where they were going. And we were walking, Corey and I, he was, so he was 20 months old and we were just walking down to the um, dogs to feed the dogs and that's where the sheep would reside and they, they were actually not far from their pen. And I said to him, oh, mate, we, let's hop on the bike and we'll just – put the sheep away, we better lock them up. It was, say, five o'clock in the afternoon and we'd had a bit of a drizzle of rain that day so it was a bit wet and, you know, we just putted around and hazed the sheep around as it were and they just went up, up the track the wrong way. So I went up alongside them and they all wheeled away from me the right way back to their pen except for one silly ewe. She sort of kept going and um, I rode up alongside her and she jumped into the front wheel of the bike and that's the last thing I remember. Is the last thing that I remember is I, that I couldn't grab the brake quick enough or put my lift my foot to put it on the brake quick enough, and I went oh, because I knew that it was not good. Like she, mm. I just remember seeing her jump at, toward me, and yeah, the next thing I woke up and well, I, I'm assuming I, I got knocked out or I can't remember what happened um, in that space of I don't know how long it was, whether it was five minutes or fifteen minutes. Um, but I, yeah, came to and was very groggy and I rang Carl and I couldn't get him. He was at a bull sale. So then I rang Carl's father because they lived just up the road from us and I really can't even remember the conversation. I think it was just more, you know, something, I've had an accident and, yeah, that, that's really it that I can remember and I, I think Carl might have rung me back and I, you know, portrayed the same thing to him and he said, where's Corey? And at this point I was walking back toward the house and I sort of looked around and I was like, oh, actually, um, oh, I had him in my arm. When I rode the bike with him um, in front of me, I'd put my arm over the over his shoulder and then hold him down in his crutch, like hold his nappy sort of thing. So it was over across his body, I suppose. Um, and I still had him in that, he's still in that position. And I said, oh, no, he's okay. I think he's, oh, he's sort of, he's sort of groaning a bit, but he doesn't, he's not really making, um, I don't know, I can't get him to wake up. And I think that really then rang alarm bells for Carl and he could tell that I wasn't, really I wasn't you know, yeah. all there or 100%. And um, anyway, so he said, just stay there. And I remember sitting down for, I don't know how long, I sat down and then I, I just had this thing I needed to get back to the house. So... I got up and then just kept walking and got back to the house and I don't know how long I was there for. Carl might have just turned up or it's all very grey to me. Um, and, yeah, when he got home, um, the ambulance wasn't too far behind him because he had obviously phoned an ambulance and, yeah, the, they, um, was two blokes, they laid him down on the spare bed and just started cutting all his clothes off and I was trying to figure out 
like what has actually happened. I was still so mm. dazed and I had um, I remember walking when I had Corey, I got off the phone to him, Carl, and I was walking up the driveway. I had him in my left arm still and because you have to drive with your right arm, right hand. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, oh, my left shoulder, geez, that's a bit sore. And I put my hand inside my coat and I had a very broken collarbone and um, my collarbone was, oh, the skin was actually pinched in the break. So I, it was very sharp. I couldn't, it didn't bust out through the skin, but it was, yeah, it was just very sharp. So I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's broken. All right, well, you know, I've just got to get back to the house. <laughs> you know, I've never broken a bone in my body and it didn't, it didn't panic me. I think I was just so concerned about Corey. And they, as they were cutting his clothes off and, you know, taking his obs and stuff, they're saying they were organising a chopper. And I then that really started to hit home with Farah. This is really surreal and very, this is very bad. Like, you know, this is not good. This is, yeah. Anyway, so um, they took me in an ambulance because they looked at me then and they said, oh, are you all right? And I said, oh, I broke my collarbone. And they said, oh, are you? you're sure? And because uh, you seem fine. And I'm like, no, I've, and I showed them, they're like, well, I'll put that away. You know, <laughs> yes, it's broken. I, okay. You sit down. And I'm like, don't worry about me. I'm not like, I can't even feel it. I've you know, had that much adrenaline obviously pumping through me. So they took me in an ambulance and they, well, they took Corey first to Toowoomba and then I wasn't too far behind them in another, in a second ambulance. And Carl went with Corey and we were both in emergency. I remember together and they just kept reassuring me that you know Corey's over there and see those light those fluoro lights there he's underneath that and they're working on him and then yeah when they came to me and said they're taking him in a um, they've got a chopper and they're going to take him to Brisbane that was like oh my god you know like what's wrong with him you know you can't you can't begin to imagine how gut-wrenching that is and not then they just couldn't really tell me they just said oh look he's bumped he's hurt his head you know we we have to go and make sure that he's all right and that's the best place for him you know he, w- he wouldn't be going there if he if we didn't think he needed that care so he's going to have a doctor with him and Carl actually went in the chopper with him um so this was around midnight and it was so hazy Carl said they couldn't see a thing from when they left Toowoomba to when they arrived in Brisbane and he said Carl said all I can remember saying is the chopper pilot was just uh he was wet from head to toe he was had beads of sweat just running down his face and Carl when they landed in Brisbane Carl said you know you're right and he said oh I just had a bit on there you know he couldn't see a thing not a thing until they landed on the pad on the roof of Lady Salento so that was amazing and, you know, hats off to the sort of help that are available, you know, with RACQ Lifelight and, um, you know, the sort of people that they have in their entourage is just incredible and we're so grateful for, for all of those people um, that helped us that day. Yeah. So Felicity, at this point you were still laying in a hospital bed in the emergency ward. In Toowoomba, yes, and my baby's been taken to Brisbane. To Brisbane. Mm. So you were told that... You know, he needed his head looked at. Was there anything else given to you, or like, is that all that you knew at that point? Uh, I, I'm not sure if they did a scan. If they they might have done a no, they didn't scan him. Oh, I don't know if they did yeah. a cat scan on him in Toowoomba, a CT scan. Um, they assessed him for like broken bones and all that sort of stuff, and made sure like the you know his neck and everything was okay and his spine and yeah, so they did do a scan him because I remember them saying to me his spine is okay mm. um, because that's what I was I just you know that's the first thing I thought of is is like has he broken anything in his 
back or his neck or, you know, yes. like what's happened. And um, they said, no, he's, that's all fine. We're just concerned about his little head. I'm sure it was put or portrayed to me like that. And, yes. you know, then they said the same thing to me then too because they were like, well, you know, you've, we think you've bumped your head. You, I didn't have any bark off me but oh, a bit of a graze on my shoulder but nothing on my head. But, yeah, clearly I'd been knocked out. And so they took me away to do scans and X-rays and whatever and in that time that's when they took Corey and Carl. And so I knew I was pregnant with the twins, right, and they were looking at my shoulder. They said, look, we want to do surgery. And I, so then I said, look, I'm, I know that I'm pregnant with twins and they're only six weeks and their heartbeat only kicked in like four days ago. It actually kicked in the day of the scan. The lady that when she scanned me, she said, oh, I think, you know, their heartbeat's only kicked in in the last 12 hours because you're very, you know, you're only five or six weeks. But I felt I was a little bit further along because I was, you know, I, I felt like I was nearly showing already, like I felt really bloated. Yeah. Anyway, so I told them that, that I was early pregnant with twins and so then they were concerned of sort of, you know, putting me under. I said, if there's any risk for losing the pregnancy, I don't want to have surgery. And they said, well, look, we can dope you up on morphine and make sure the break is no longer pinching the skin because obviously they'd be concerned of the viability of my skin then, mm. you know, there would be a wound there if they left it. So I could feel it all but I couldn't move because I was, you know, um, had a lot of morphine in me. So that was the safest way for them to do it. Um, they manipulated my shoulder while I was awake and um, I was there then overnight and, yeah, I do. I remember receiving a phone call from Carl in the morning like, I don't know, five or six o'clock in the morning and he was really distressed because they put Corey obviously in a coma to take him to um, Brisbane so he was stabilised and, you know, I think that those seeing those images of him in a hospital bed, you know, your tiny little vulnerable child mm. with so many tubes coming out of them and wires coming from them and, you know, the reality of him being in intensive care is just a real, like, holy shit moment. And just and, not knowing. Yeah, he was. Just, he rang me. Just he was really distressed, and you know, do you think he's going to be okay? And like, God, what am I? What do I know? I'm not even there. I can't even see him. So that was pretty horrific. Um, yeah, my my family had actually gone away on a holiday over to Northwest Ireland at 70 k's out from Gladstone, and with no phone service. So my mum and dad and my brother and his wife were over there, and my sister she lives in Cumbia. So. Um, we had to try and get a message to them that we'd had an accident and my sister actually came and picked me up that morning and drove me to Brisbane and got to see how Corey was. Hmm. So, Felicity, at what point did you, looking back now, do you feel like your fear set in that that moment that, holy shit, this is not okay? Oh, totally. Like even thinking about it now, my heart is racing. You know, they unfortunately they when they came, like I think I may have, just had no I hadn't had x-rays on my neck yet this is an emergency and they took they wheeled me over to him and so then I could see he's you know laying there and um he was crying but he sort of wasn't conscious it was it's a bit strange to try and explain it then they started tubing him while he was still laying there to intubate him ready to put him in his coma to take him in the chopper so that was all a little bit traumatic and for everybody um and that was the last image I had of him in my mind when then they wheeled me away and said you know well we've got to go now and he's got to go now because the chopper's waiting for him and whatever so that was all yeah very raw and real and um got my sister got me to Brisbane the next morning and yeah seeing him was very confronting 
because he's just like he's asleep, I guess. But you know, not you couldn't wake him up yet. So the plan from there was to leave him in a coma for a couple of days and monitor what was happening with his little brain. So um, yeah, he just had swelling on his brain. So that was the biggest thing I think that they were making sure of, to, you know, keeping the inflammation down so he didn't have to go into surgery. He didn't mm. ever have to go into surgery, which was very grateful grateful for. Um, yeah, so from there it was about, it might have been closer to a week I reckon that they said, oh, yeah, I'm really not sure. Yeah. Like it's, it's funny in a time like that you kind of black things out yeah. and then you know dealing with pregnancy hormones and a broken shoulder and yeah yeah we had a bit on but it was it was a it was at least four or five days that he was in a coma for and then they eventually said okay we think he's ready to we'll take the drugs now and um you know see how he wakes up and they couldn't give us any like they didn't know how he was going to wake up or what nobody ever said that you know he wasn't going to be right nobody yeah. said he was yeah yeah, so they took the drugs away from him and, like, they said, oh, you know, 12 hours probably we'll start to see some kind of responses or, you know, that because the drugs were worn off. He didn't wake up for close to two weeks. <gasps> um, yeah. Yeah. Oh and what God. we did have was he, like, he would just cry a lot, like, if he if he was conscious at all, it was just like moaning, and you know it, doctors just couldn't tell us. Around the just before two week mark, he you know started to maybe flicker his eyes, and you'd be like holding his hand or rubbing his arms or massaging his feet or something, and he might twitch, you know. And yeah, then and he was just like crying a lot. If he was if he started to, as he started to get more conscious he was just crying and moaning and you know I remember doctors coming in and saying you know they were assessing what our expectations were of what we wanted out of the situation and I just kept saying like we just need our little boy back we did that's it that's we're not leaving until he's right and they were like you know they never no one ever said okay and no like you just you wouldn't get a response they would just write that down <laughs> and it was oh that was hard to deal with so at any point did they, like, was this normal? Like, I know it's not normal, but do you know so, what I mean? Yeah, the, because bra- brain is so, brain injury is so difficult to decipher. Like what appears to be the same brain injury on a CT scan might have completely different outcomes to the same, what appears to be the same brain injury on a different person and of a different age. So they'd seen injury similar to this. All he had was a little bit of blood in his brain fluid. They couldn't see the site of an injury or a lesion or anything. So they were really like, then they started to, you know, ask questions like maybe he's had a stroke or, you know, something going down those lines. Because as he started to come to, he was completely paralysed down his left side and it was even more dazzling to them because his bump was on, he he had bumped his head on his left side and normally that would, um, you know, if it was an injury on the left side of his brain, it would be the opposite and it was all down the left side. So then they were like, oh, maybe he's broken his shoulder and we haven't picked up on it and he can't move his arm. We're like, I'm like, his arm's not broken. It's, you know, it's not, this doesn't, it's not broken. It's something else. And Anyway, in the end, we agreed to 
you know, putting him under another GA, which was, oh, that was hard because, you know, we had just started to come to and be more conscious and, you know, you could actually talk to him and he would sit and look at you and, like, listen and, you know, happy to be cuddled and that sort of thing and um, they just couldn't figure out where the paralysis was coming from. So the stroke was the most likely option and they um, did another scan and they said, look, no, he hasn't had a stroke. Um, we just think that it's as a result of an injury mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we can start rehab. And so he started coming too and then he started like just going leaps, coming, you know, really good in as far as trying to speak. So at 20 months old he could like count. He could count to 10. It was amazing. He was a really good talker and um, for him to, you know, he'd try to communicate and he'd be slurring his words and he couldn't really speak very well and he was all he was paralyzed. That was um like this is not this is not how we're leaving here. This is not gonna be um what we're left with and what he's left with. And yeah, they started a rigid rehab program with him. Yeah, I think because it was a blessing in disguise that he was so young. They just kept saying, look, he's so young and um, having some sort of trauma like this, his little brain makes will make new pathways and, you know, his, his body knows how to walk and his talk and it's, he's done it. So there is that muscle memory and it, it knows how to do it but, you know, now has to make new pathways to make it happen again. So that's why the rehab and, yeah, he had speech therapists and um, he had physiotherapists and OT and working on his fine motor skills. And, and like, when I, you know, I'm talking about it now, it sounds like it could be something that would be going on forever. And I've since spoken to families that have, you know, their children will be in a deficit forever. And we're so grateful that Corey has made a 100% recovery and he's totally fine. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're just, I just can't believe that, you know, we were only down there for, it ended up being six weeks and um, he continued on with rehab, mostly physio. Um, his speech came back really good. He was talking slowly for, well, probably for the next four to six months and then he started to, you know, speak like he was speaking and moving and he had a moon boot to stop him from um, his knee um, overextending so yeah he just had to learn to to basically walk again and use his hand again and use his arm again and you know now he's a perfectly healthy five-year-old that goes to prep and gets awards and you know wins his running races and like it's just it's really amazing incredible I'm just in awe of him yeah so Felicity when uh the six weeks that Corey was in hospital where like where did you guys call home what yeah so we um we were so lucky to be um offered to stay in the Ronald McDonald house across the road from Lady Salento which is now the Queensland Children's Hospital and yeah that that was an absolute godsend because even still we um you know, found it difficult to like. So we were both contracting, both of us. We were, um, we were earning a wage, but purely from contracting. And we hadn't, we weren't riding many horses at that stage. Um, we our cow numbers were up. We you know bought two paddocks now. You know, one one little kid, two more on the way, and we were able to stay in the Ronald McDonald House, which was incredible. But you know, living away like that and having to just buy every meal. Um, that in itself was a huge thing and a big cost. So we're really grateful that we were able to stay in the Ronald McDonald house. And 
Well, we actually had um, Kuya Camp Draft Committee were amazing and they actually offered to run a fundraising event for us and we were originally like, no, look, thank you so much, but we'll be okay. And Andrew Winks is a close friend of ours, Andrew and Lauren Winks, and Andrew rang Carl and said, we want to do this fundraiser for you, mate. Like I know that, you know, you've got bloody property, you've got a payment coming up soon. Like you've got a place to pay for, you've got you know, all this stuff happening, we want to do something, let us do something for you. And we were, okay, we'll agree that, you know, it's just such a beautiful gesture. Thank you. Um, that we wanted at least half of what they raised to go towards Life Flight and the Ron McDonald House. So that's what they did, which was just incredible. Yeah. Can you remember how much they raised? Yep. They raised 40 grand. I'm pretty sure it was just the one day camp draft and then they had an auction that evening and you know live music and stuff so you know there was camp drafters come down for this um, event like from um, Clermont and Mount Isa um, down to little old Kuya for our event Um, I suppose it just goes to show how strong our community is our bush community is and um, you know in times of need how people can support each other is just incredible and you know to be honest that that 20 grand that we you know that we received out of that fundraiser was put straight towards our first property payment and we wouldn't I don't know how the hell we would have we would have paid for it otherwise so absolutely because the reality is you know you you hear people say well you do what you need to do to make it and yes you do but Mm. you know selling that property is not an option that's do you know what I mean like that's that's not a quick turnaround Mm. it it was it was pretty much the only option. Yes. No, we were very grateful to have that support around us and the community support and um, that help and, you know, that really kept us going and was able to really help us out in a time of need for sure. So, Felicity, at what point did you feel like you could breathe again and that you were coming out on the other side of it? Well, you know what? I think it was when we got home. Like I said, Corey was always with us when we were working. He was, you know, like we'd be... God, we'd be needling cows up a race or something and I'd in summer and you'd just put him in a lick tub beside you with a two inches full of water and he'd splash around in the water and, you know, this is before his accident. Yeah. Um, so he was just used to being outside and, you know, with us doing jobs and whatever. And as soon as we got home, he, he just skyrocketed. Like his, he improved out of sight and that really resonated with us that, when we were in hospital and he was still very much sleepy and like so he was getting fed through a nose tube for, yeah, five weeks or something. And, you know, um, we'd, in his room just so much and um, Carl came up with the idea. He just said to one of the nurses, like, could we take Corey up onto the roof or like outside? Could we could take him for a push in the pram? And, you know, he was very stabilised and um, whatever, but he was just he's still paralysed and very sleepy and they said yeah 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 sure just be you know back by one o'clock or whatever for his next sort of obs and we're like oh okay so we went up onto the roof and um sat out in the courtyard sort of area in the sun and it was like it was pretty hot so this is talking like october in brisbane and um yeah, I remember Corey, um, he, he put his hand up over his eyes because the sun was shining. So, so I pulled the thing down a little bit, which made me laugh. And he had it used to have a dummy a lot. So he had his dummy clipped to him and I, I took it out of his mouth, just sort of played with it with him and he giggled. 
And I was, and that was the first time, you know, he laughed, uh, you know, in that period when we we're there in hospital and we would, we, Carl and I just looked at each other and we're like, he's going to be okay. He's mm. going to be fine. We just need to do that. We need to get out and go outside and just do what we continue doing what we did, yeah. like, you know, just be us. So we then the next day, I'm pretty sure we asked, you know, could we take Corey, could we go and take him down the street and go for lunch? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, again, just be back and, mm. um, you know, just sit up at the table and, you know, had lunch and had him on our lap and, you know, again, he's very like just not with it, you know, and that's the sucky part about, you know, going out and about when, you know, you have a child that looks like, and at that point we may have had a child that needed, you know, special care or high needs for life. We didn't know. We just did not know what that looked like and no doctor could tell us either because he was so young and had that sort of injury. So, you know, we just felt like, getting back to normality and getting him back to a place that was not foreign to him was really important. Um, but again, not sacrificing rehab and, and all that sort of thing. So I made that known to the doctors and you know they have been incredible. And then um, they actually uh, made sure we were part of their outreach program in Toowoomba. So that was fantastic, um, you know, having some services closer to home. So the camp drafting community, it is big, but it's also small the rural community even, and we don't often have to look too far before, you know, we know someone that's been in a similar situation or their lives have been turned upside down, much like yours. Yeah, you don't have to look far at all. You you know, I could name bloody five or ten people just while we're sitting here on people that I know that have had to stay away from home or, you know, had had something traumatic happen to them like, like we have and, um, you know, go through a bit of an experience that you'd rather not. So that has all led to an idea of yours and a few friends around you of the Common Ground Foundation. Yeah, close friends have recently, you know, a bit of stuff happened with their family and that's kind of ignited this idea with myself and another friend, Georgie Keats. She's, um, you know, been a big driver in this as well. We have decided that, you know, in a regional centre like Toowoomba where a lot of people come down and get treatment or help or, you know, they travel from afar to come to, to town to have to get, you know, whether it be cancer treatment or, you know, something to do with your kids or, you know, pregnancy issues and, you know, Toowoomba is often the place of choice for regional people. You know, the big smoke like Brisbane is somewhere we'd all rather not be. <laughs> <laughs> so Toowoomba is often somewhere where we all travel to. And there's nothing like the Ronald McDonald House in Toowoomba. Um, I think there is maybe some units to do with the hospital. Uh, but, you know, I think if we can get somewhere that is a home, that we can recreate a home in a city centre that can be replicated like what we're used to in the bush or, you know, when you're an outdoorsy family that you can have a backyard and, you know, live in this home in Toowoomba for the period of time that you need care or medical, you know, you're sourcing those medical specialists. So, yeah, from that we've, we've had this idea, we want to purchase a home in Toowoomba and, um, you know, make it available for regional families having to come to town for that medical help. So tell us what's on the cards. You've got a big fundraiser happening, is that right? Yeah, we um, have a fundraiser planned for the 24th of November. This has all come about so quickly, but it's gained a lot of momentum. So we thought we'd just roll with it and make it happen this year. 
Bracknell Lodge, Rick and Beck Knutson, um, they have a wedding facility at Bracknell Lodge in Wairima, which is just the outskirts of Toowoomba. They've um, kindly given us their facility to run an event and our event's going to be really quite unique. So it's a hats and heels event. Um, so you come frocked up and there'll be a um, extreme Bronx shootout. So there'll be 15 horses bucked. Um, we'll have the top 15 Bronx riders in Australia come and ride horses and they'll be Calcutted off. So no, it's not a rodeo. That's our feature event of the evening. They're going to actually build arena an arena right beside the wedding facility or venue, like right there in the car park. So we're standing around all dressed up, watch this magnificent event, auction off the Cowboys in the Calcutta. And then after that, we'll have live music, canapes, gambling tables, and, and an auction of some, um, a, a large array of auction items. So it should be a really fun-filled night. We're just so excited about it. And again, like it's it's gained so much momentum that we thought we'd just have to roll with it this year and, and make it happen. Well, that sounds very exciting and we do wish you all the best. Felicity, I know that story wasn't easy to share today, so I do thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm so glad that Corey has made a full recovery and... And he is kicking all sorts of goals. Uh, We wish you all the best with the Common Ground Foundation. And I guess if you can't make the event, can people donate somewhere now? Absolutely. So they can get in touch with us. We've got a Facebook page and Instagram, Common Ground Foundation, or you can send an email to commongroundfoundation at outlook.com. We're accepting auction items, sponsorship, donations, and um, we will actually have tickets to the event available on Eventbrite uh, at the start of November. So it's all happening really quickly and it is really exciting. So, yes, we, we really want to get this home in Toowoomba off the ground and um, I can't wait until we get the first family in there, Caitlin. Oh, hopefully it stays unattended for a really long time and no one needs it. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, we've been helped out in a time of need and, you know, that help was very welcomed. So if I can give back in some small way, you know, with this foundation, hopefully we can cater for other families that have some tragic circumstances or, you know, mm. are in are in need of help too. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you, Felicity, and we wish you all the best and we will stay tuned and if we can help in any way, please let us know. Thanks so much, Caitlin, and thank you for all your support with our foundation too. You've been fantastic with, you know, creating our logo and getting us off the ground in that way, so thank you. My pleasure. Thanks to our SNAP sponsor, Outback Bell. <laughs>